Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 396 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab, the astronauts. Part 1. I always do biographies before any crewed mission, and Skylab is no different. This time I'm going to cover all nine astronauts as a whole before the flights begin. Most of the info provided here comes from David Hitt's book, Homesteading Space. The nine astronauts selected to serve on the Skylab flight crews represented three different demographics. Two of the astronauts, Alan Bean and Pete Conrad, had flown in space before. Three astronauts, Owen Garriott, Ed Gibson, and Joe Kerwin, were members of the first group of scientist astronauts NASA had selected. The remaining four astronauts, Jerry Carr, Jack Lausma, Bill Pogue, and Paul Weitz were untried pilot astronauts. I'm sure you recall from Apollo 12, the moonwalkers were Alan Bean and Pete Conrad. Their last flight was together, and it was on Apollo 12. Of course, with three previous space flights notched out, Pete Conrad was unquestionably the senior member of the three Skylab crews, and perhaps the coolest. I did a two-part biography on Pete Conrad back on episodes 238 and 39, so I will just give you a brief reminder of who he was, and you can go back to those episodes if you would like more info. Charles Conrad was born in June 1930 in Philadelphia. He developed a love of flying at an early age. After earning a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering from Princeton, Conrad pursued his love as a naval aviator. He continued his career by earning a spot at Pax River, the Navy Test Pilot School at Patuxent River, Maryland where he served as a test pilot, flight instructor, and performance engineer. While at Pax River, Conrad first applied to become an astronaut in the initial selection process that created the original Mercury 7. 
Unfortunately, he was not selected in that round. But the experiences of his friends who were chosen motivated him to try again. And in 1962, Conrad was selected as part of NASA's second class of astronauts. Nine men that also included Neil Armstrong, Frank Borman, Jim McDivitt, Jim Lovell, Elliot C., Tom Stafford, Ed White, and John Young. Conrad's first space flight came three years later when he was assigned as pilot of the third manned Gemini mission in August of 1965. The mission was commanded by Mercury 7 astronaut Gordo Cooper. The Gemini 5 mission lasted almost eight days and set a flight duration record at the time. This was actually the first of two times in Conrad's career where he would set a new space flight duration record. Just over a year later, Conrad advanced to a command of his own, flying the Gemini 11 mission with pilot Dick Gordon in September of 1966. This was the second-to-last Gemini mission, flown just months before manned Apollo flights were supposed to begin. Gemini 11's goal was to gain more experience with rendezvous and extravehicular activity, two areas which were absolutely critical for Apollo. It was three years before Conrad flew again on Apollo 12, coming four months after Apollo 11 fulfilled President Kennedy's mandate of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth before the decade was out. The Apollo 12 mission reunited Commander Conrad with Command Module Pilot Gordon and Al Bean joined the two as Lunar Module Pilot. On November 19, 1969, Conrad and Bean left Gordon in lunar orbit and landed on the lunar surface. As such, Conrad became the third man to walk on the moon. Conrad referenced Armstrong's famous that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind line in his own words by saying, Whoopee, man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me. Now, just so you will remember Pete Conrad's voice, here he speaks a few words on the purpose of Skylab. Well, Skylab is the name given to an older program that we had called Apollo Applications, and we have attempted to take Apollo hardware and make a prototype space station with it. And in doing so, we took uh, the third stage of a Saturn V, and we've made it into an orbiting laboratory, and we had to add on top of that uh, some other equipment. We had to put a structure that we could dock with, and we needed to go outside because we were going to have a solar telescope on it, and we needed to go outside to the solar telescope to take the film out and load the cameras again. This whole total vehicle has been called Skylab, and it's really the United States' first attempt at a orbiting space station, and we hope to gain knowledge from it that tells us, one, that man can live for extended periods of time in space, and while he's doing that, or proving that, we have this solar telescope which will be able to view the sun in uh, an area 
uh, with the instruments that you can't do it from the ground because uh, the atmosphere filters out these various wavelengths that they would like to study the sun with. And then our third major thing are our Earth Resources Experiments, where we're going to observe the ground with a multitude of instruments that will help the hydrologist, the agriculturalist, and the forestry man, and, uh, and a great deal of other people that are interested in natural resources. Then along with that, those three major objectives, we have about 50 colliery experiments on board. Uh, some of which are more sophisticated experiments of the type that we ran in Gemini. Uh, we're still trying to learn a great deal about our Earth and its atmosphere, so we're going to do UV photography of the upper atmosphere. We're trying to determine exactly the mechanism that happens in the upper atmosphere. We're going to do UV photography on the stars, and we did a great deal of that in Gemini. And uh, by doing this, uh, the type instruments that we are using, uh, we are able to integrate man into, uh, into uh, making real-time decisions on exactly how to take the, uh, uh, the pictures and so forth of the star fields. Of course, uh, these again are pictures that could not be taken on Earth because the atmosphere filters out the UV. We have a maneuvering unit on board. We need to find out uh, just how well man can fly around with a little maneuvering unit and our vehicle's big enough to do it inside rather than venture outside for the first time. These things have applications for future space stations, uh, such as the kind of space station you could build with the shuttle. Uh, Along with those experiments, of course, uh, we are engineering-wise looking at the habitability of this space station and how well we adapt to it and how we would design it better uh, for a permanent space station. And that pretty well sums up Skylab. The second veteran astronaut was Alan Bean. He was born in 1932 in Wheeler, Texas. Similarly to Conrad, Bean earned his bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering at the University of Texas and then went into service in the Navy. Having already been in Reserve Officer Training Corps while in college. After a four-year tour of duty, Bean decided to attend the Navy Test Pilot School where he flew as a test pilot of naval aircraft. Bean was selected as an astronaut in NASA's third group in October 1962. Bean's class was almost as large as both of his predecessors combined. It included Buzz Aldrin, Bill Anders, Charlie Bassett, Gene Cernan, Roger Chaffee, Michael Collins, Walt Cunningham, Don Isley, Ted Freeman, Dick Gordon, Rusty Swigert, David Scott, and C.C. Williams. Al Bean's first crew assignment was as backup for Gemini 10, along with C.C. Williams. While his crewmate preceded him in obtaining an Apollo assignment as backup for Apollo 9, sadly, that slot was inherited by Bean after Williams' death in a crash of one of the T-38 jets used by the astronaut corps. From that assignment, Bean rotated up to the prime crew of Apollo 12. Bean's participation in a, the Apollo 12 mission with Pete Conrad led to their joint involvement in Skylab. 
Bean had previously worked on Apollo applications as a ground assignment while waiting to be placed on a crew. He served as the astronaut head of Apollo Applications Project until he became a member of Conrad's backup crew for Apollo 9. After transferring from the Apollo Applications Project to Apollo, Bean maintained his interest in the program and kept up with its development, noting with approval, for example, the change from the wet workshop to the dry workshop. This is how Al Bean remembered the decision to pursue a Skylab mission. Quote, We were starting to talk about what we wanted to do next. This was on the flight home from the moon. Dick wanted to stay in Apollo because he knew we were cycling threes, so he would be commander of Apollo 18. First, we decided... We would divvy up every flight and we would swap around. This was Pete. Dick would be the commander of the next one, and the three of us would run the space program. But then, as we got to talking about it, Pete wanted to do Skylab. And we both felt that we did not want the moon program to get crowded. Other people deserve chances too. So what we thought, well, we will try to be part of Skylab. So Pete says, that looks like it would be a good thing to do. Looks like it would be fun. I do not think Dick was interested. A lot of astronauts were not interested in flying for 28 days or 56 days. But we were. We thought it would be a good adventure. I never did go and see Deke. I should have done it, but I never did. But Pete went over and talked with him. It seems to me the announcement in the meeting between me and Owen and Jack as a crew for Skylab was a surprise to me. Or maybe Deke phoned me and said this was going to be announced. But he did not consult me about Owen and Jack. It turned out great. We ended up with the best crew, no doubt about it. End quote. After Apollo 12, as was customary, the three members of its crew were sent by NASA on a goodwill tour of the world. And upon returning, Bean and Conrad transferred from Apollo to Skylab. In addition to their common background as moonwalkers, the first two Skylab commanders shared another trait as well. Each was described by members of their Skylab crew as being one of the most motivated men in the astronaut corps. In Conrad's case, a lifelong drive to succeed had been increased by his rejection from the Mercury astronaut selection. During an oral history interview for Johnson Space Center in 2000, Joe Kerwin recalled, quote, Pete was rejected, and the basis for his rejection was a psychiatric evaluation that he was psychologically unsuited for long-duration space missions. So, here is Conrad. He has gone to the moon. 
He is up here in Skylab with us on the first ever long-duration space station mission, and he is saying, I'll show that son of a gun who's psychologically unsuited for what. So, he was very motivated to do a great job on Skylab. Just the kind of commander you want. He exercised more than we did and kept us all up to a very high level, even coming home. He said, guys, we're going to walk out of this spacecraft. There's going to be none of this carrying us out on stretcher stuff. When that hatch opens, I'm out of here, and I want you guys to follow me. End quote. Al Bean's drive was an extremely important factor in the direction the second Skylab mission took. Owen Garriott said that a major reason for the incredibly high productivity of his crew was that, quote, we had one guy that was better motivated than anybody in the astronaut office, end quote. In spite of his accomplishments as a Navy test pilot and astronaut that many other people only aspire to, Bean continually pushed himself further. Even during his days in the astronaut corps, Bean was a devotee of motivational tapes. For decades after the time of Skylab, Bean continued to listen to the tapes, still working to motivate himself to accomplish all he could to be the best he could. When his spaceflight days were over, Bean directed his drive into his devotion to capture in his paintings, the emotional aspects of his unique experiences. Bean said, quote, I've always had a point of view that you don't have to be the smartest person or the healthiest or the brightest person to really do good work. I've never felt like I was that, but I always felt like I could do good work. Like these paintings, I never was the best artist in class, but I can do better art than anybody that was ever in any of my classes because I just keep doing it. End quote. Since he flew with both men on Apollo 12, Dick Gordon was asked who was more motivated. He tactfully declined to answer, saying only that each was very motivated in his own way, and that each had his own distinctive leadership style. Now I have a clip of Al Bean speaking about how Skylab worked. Well, Skylab's going to be uh, America's first space station as such. We're going to be up there roughly eight months, and we're going to visit it three times during this eight months and we're going to find out a lot about how to live in a space station, what we can do there. Meet astronaut Alan Bean, commander of the second Skylab space station crew. It will launch at the end of April of 1973. The very next day, we'll send up a crew, three men. It'll occupy Skylab for a month, well, 28 days, really. They'll return to Earth, and then about two months later, uh, the second crew will go up, and that's the crew that I happen to be on, Skylab 3 mission. We'll stay there 56 days or roughly two months. We'll return to Earth, and then the third crew will go up about a month later. So essentially, we're going to occupy it a total of five months out of eight months, 
beginning uh, the middle of 1973. That's not very far away from right now. We asked astronaut Bean what it will be like to live and work inside the house-sized space station. We have uh, three bedrooms that we can live in. They're very small. The beds are on the wall as opposed to on the floor, but they're still ample in zero G. We can eat uh, on little trays similar to the ones you find on airplanes. We have to heat the food there, and we have to contain it or float away, but essentially we can live a lot more Earth-like than we could in the Apollo and Gemini programs. Skylab will orbit the globe every 93 minutes. From its 270-mile-high vantage point, the astronauts can take a good look at the Earth's resources. We know that pollution is not just a problem in a small scale. Pollution that's in Los Angeles today will be in Phoenix day after tomorrow. Uh, it'll be in Dallas, Texas day after that. So what we hope to do is look down at the Earth with suitable sensors, let's say uh, infrared sensors, uh, microwave sensors, various other frequency bands, including just visual cameras, and uh, with this equipment, look at the Earth. Take this information, bring it back, and evaluate it using different electronic and photographic techniques, and from this data, uh, hopefully be able to look at crops and tell whether they're diseased or not, look at some and see if they need irrigation, look at some of the forests that we don't normally uh, get close to and see how they're doing, Try to get a yield of, for example, the grass on rangeland. Uh, determine the runoff that's going to happen at, due to spring uh, uh, thaws from the snows on the mountains. Uh, find fish in the ocean. Many things. We don't, we don't really know exactly all the things we can do right now with Earth's resources because it's in its infancy. Beyond Earth, the crews of Skylab will look outward toward the sun since it affects the Earth in so many ways from weather to communications. Another major effort of Skylab is to make a close study of man himself in weightless space. Even the effects of zero gravity on human cells will be studied. We know we want to find out how man survives in space for long periods. We know there's a lot of jobs that can be done in Earth orbit to help man on Earth. And uh, what we've done is taken mostly uh, Apollo hardware, modified it as best we could, and with it we've come up with really a very... Uh, exceptional uh, space station that we hope is going to answer many questions that need to be answered now for uh, the future uh, of space flight and also the future of, uh, of how we're going to use space to help the man in the streets. If you would like some more details about Al Bean's life, I recorded his biography on episode number 237. Now let's move on to the scientist astronauts. By 1962, the recommendation was made to NASA that it should add scientists to the lunar exploration crews. The scientists contended they would be able to more effectively conduct research there than the pilots. The idea that scientists should be included in the first lunar landing crew was summarily dismissed by management, who argued that spaceflight to another world was a challenging prospect requiring the skills of expert pilots. Furthermore, having a scientist on the crew to conduct research on the lunar surface would be of no use if they were unable to reach the surface safely to begin with. However, NASA had to concede 
that there were benefits to recruiting scientists into the astronaut corps for future missions. So, in 1964, NASA partnered with the National Academy of Sciences to open its first scientist-astronaut application process. To be eligible to apply, candidates had to have been born no earlier than August 1, 1930, and be no more than six feet tall. Applicants had to be U.S. citizens, and most importantly for this round, had to hold a Doctor of Philosophy degree, Ph.D., or equivalent in natural sciences, medicine, or engineering. Flight experience was not required, but it would enhance the applicant's chances. Within 75 days of announcing the selection process, NASA had received 1,351 applications. The agency screened those applications and submitted 400 of them to the Academy of Sciences for review. NASA wanted to bring 10 to 20 new candidates into astronaut training at the end of the process to ensure enough made it through the training. NASA next asked the Academy to select 50 finalists from which it could pick its candidates. However, after a thorough review, the National Academy of Sciences only felt that 16 of the applicants were sufficiently qualified to recommend to NASA. NASA put those finalists through its selection process of medical, psychological testing, and interviews and ended up with only a handful of men it found worthy of becoming astronauts. In 1965, NASA officially selected a group of six scientist astronauts. Each of the three Skylab crew included one of the members of NASA's scientist astronaut group. The six men selected were Owen Garriott, Ed Gibson, Dwayne Graveline, Joe Kerwin, Curtis, Michelle, and Harrison Smith. When asked about the selection process, astronaut candidate Ed Gibson stated, quote, For nine months, NASA and the National Academy of Sciences screened over 1,300 applicants. In all of the U.S., NASA could find only six healthy scientists. End quote. One of the six, Dwayne Graveline left the Corps very shortly after reporting for duty because of an unease over publicity concerning his wife's decision to file for divorce. Kerwin and Michelle were already jet qualified, but the other three began their astronaut careers by going through flight training at Williams Air Force Base in Arizona. Gibson said, quote, Two of our group had pilot wings from the military. NASA sent the remaining four of us off to flight school to get Air Force wings. We all did reasonably well. I was second in my class of 42. I would have been first, but I screwed up on an aerodynamics exam. It was very embarrassing for a guy with a Ph.D. that included a lot of theoretical aerodynamics. Since then, I acquired 
2,200 hours of flight time in a T-38 and additional hours in other aircraft, including helicopters. I felt that in a flash, my lab stool had been ripped out from under me and replaced by a T-38 ejection seat. End quote. Much was made of the role of the scientist astronauts within the astronaut corps. Certainly the members of the first scientist group were treated differently by management than their pilot counterparts. Some of the scientist astronauts, particularly in the next group selected, chafed at a treatment they perceived as relegating them to second-class citizen status within the corps. However, others believed that it made sense that the two types of astronauts would perform different functions, and they did not mind the role they were assigned. And the rest fell somewhere in the middle. Joe Kerwin recalled a funny story about the treatment. Quote, There were pilots meeting in the office conference room every Monday morning at 8 o'clock. At my first one, I sat in the back of the room while Al Shepard told the group that we were here. Then he said, Headquarters has agreed that we can select another group to report next year. Dick Gordon asked, Are they going to be pilots? Al said, I certainly hope so. (laughs) A couple of weeks later, Shepard said, We'll be putting together crews for the last three Gemini flights soon. Any volunteers? Put your hand down, Kerwin. We both smiled. It was clear that these were not the flights that they had in mind for us. Nor was I ready for a flight. End quote. While the scientist's relationship with management was somewhat questionable, the scientist-astronaut's personal relationship with their fellow astronauts was generally positive. Owen Garriott recalled, quote, In my case, one of the latest Group 5 astronauts, Joe Engel, was my neighbor on the right, while another, Al Warden, was my neighbor to the left at our homes in Nassau Bay. Garriott said, My relationship with them and others in the office was always excellent, end quote. Joe Kerwin explained that while their classmates were in flight training, he and Michelle were in a sort of limbo status while awaiting the return of the others and the selection of Group 5 so their official training could begin. Kerwin said, quote, I was given a nice big office and shared a secretary with about three other astronauts. It was explained that training for the two of us would have to wait until the arrival of the next group to be selected, the original 19, as they would call themselves in the spring of 1966. So I was left pretty free to roam the center, learning what I could on my own. The other astronauts were also friendly, but they didn't pay much attention to us. Only two, Charlie Bassett and Neil Armstrong, made it a point to drop by my office, welcome me aboard, and offer to answer any questions I had. But two was enough. 
That was a great morale booster. Kerwin continued, I thought about spending some time in the clinic, keeping my medical skills fresh, and asked Captain Shepard for his concurrence. Al thought about it for a minute, then said, I don't think that's a good idea. We'll have a lot of other things for you to do. I accepted that as a dual message. One, my first priority had to be to learn, contribute, and prove myself as astronaut material. Two, maybe it wasn't a great idea to spend too much time with the doctors. And there was some sense to that. I might put myself into a conflict of interest situation, treating fellow astronauts or their dependents. It wasn't long before Jim Lovell, who'd been in my squadron at Cecil Field, Florida, before he came to Houston, dropped by and asked me to help design him a primitive exercise program. He was training to fly with Frank Borman on the longest spaceflight plan to date, Gemini 7, which would orbit the Earth for 14 days. The cockpit was about the size of the front seat of a Volkswagen Beetle, so Frank and Jim would get pretty well acquainted during the flight, and they had very little room for exercise gear. They had selected an exergeny, a compact device consisting of ropes passed through a core where the pull friction could be set. You looped two ropes over your feet and pulled on wooden handles at the other ends with your hands against the resistance. I sat down with Rita Rapp, a NASA physiologist and a wonderful worker, and together we designed a routine for Frank and Jim to use to stretch those unused back and leg muscles. At that time, and for a long time thereafter, the astronauts considered exercise and flight to be their prerogative, an operational activity, not a medical one. So, supplying their own hardware and protocol was business as usual to them. But Dr. Chuck Berry, the chief flight surgeon at MSC, thought otherwise. He considered the 14-day Gemini flight to be NASA's one opportunity to certify humans for the upcoming flights to the moon and wanted control of and data from exercise. I was called to Chuck's office on the 8th floor of the main building at MSC, and he told me that meddling in medical business without his concurrence could adversely affect my career. I said, yes, sir, and walked down to the other end of the hall where Deke Slayton, Al Shepard's boss, was located. Deke listened to my story thoughtfully and responded with five words. Keep doing what you're doing. I did. And from then on, I got a lot of assignments to go to meetings and participate in teams where medicine and operations met and sometimes clashed. It was a lot of fun, and most of the time, we all got along famously. I was accepted as a loyal member of the astronaut corps, and I had an opportunity to learn a lot about life support systems, spacesuits, bins, and exercise that was valuable later on. End quote. 
Alan Bean recalled that he and others already in the Corps were uncertain what to make of the new arrivals when they were brought in. Bean said, quote, I guess it would have to be said that we were kind of wait and see. You tend to not want any other people to come in because you want to take all the flights. So anytime some new group or anybody shows up, even though you know you have to have younger people, you still haven't had your fill. And of course, scientists, we're all test pilots, we're saying. I don't know if these guys can cut it. But they do not show up. They go off to flight training. By the time they come, we're aware that they had gone through military flight training. We also know their grades and stuff, sort of. So we were then changing our attitude a little. They got through flight training, and some of those guys were better than we were, and that was good. And of course, then we started to fly with them, and our attitude began to change even more. End quote. The use of the term scientist astronaut surely affected the astronaut corps' initial perception of its newest members. Beam continued, quote, I still think the word scientist was not a good word. It likely prompted a knee-jerk reaction among the pilot astronauts. Over time, though, that distinction lessened as their flying proficiency was recognized and some even qualified as instructor pilots in a T-38 jet. Then, too, their contributions to their assigned crews in geology, medical, or solar science training became very positive points in their relationship to other pilots. Although members of Group 4 may have come in as scientists rather than pilots, well, before flight, their complementary talents earned them both acceptance and respect from their peers. And so, by the time we worked together and they were assigned, I thought of Owen as a scientist when we did science. But as far as flying airplanes, we thought of him as just as good as we were. So it was more like there was never any flying thing that I would have said, I had better do that, or Jack should do that, but not Owen. End quote. By the time of Skylab, there were only three unflown members of Group 4 scientists, and that worked out perfectly to have one for each of the three Skylab missions. Michelle realized that an assignment on one of the Apollo flights was unlikely, and he was unsure when another mission would be available, so he decided about two months after the Apollo 11 mission to leave the Corps and return to teaching and research. Harrison Smith, who was considered the best fit of Group 4 scientists for a lunar mission, by merit of his background as a geologist, was assigned to Apollo 17 as lunar module pilot and walked on the moon in December of 72. That left Garriott, Gibson, and Kerwin to fill the role of science pilot for the three Skylab crews.
salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 396 of the SRH podcast entitled Skylab, The Astronauts, Part 1. If you should need to contact me, my new email address is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Don't use the old one as it has been out of service for several months now. Our next episode should be released by September 8th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com, typing in your email on the form. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 215 are available on the Archive podcast. Just search for Space Rocket History Archive. My Twitter handle is working again. It is at Space Rocket Hist. If you'd like to follow me there, we're also on Facebook. And also you can find me at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History is where you'll find me there. Just a few afterthoughts. Of course, I'd like to apologize for the mispronunciations. During this uh, series here, I thought I would do the astronauts' backgrounds based on the group as a whole. You remember the Mercury 7. Well, I kind of see these as the Skylab 9. There's a lot of interaction between them, and they sort of blended together in the early days at least. They had a lot of interaction. And I found a lot of good quotes in David Hitt's book. So we'll see how this works out. I received an email from a listener, Terry B., that I would like to share with you now. Terry writes, Mike, I am thoroughly enjoying your current podcast about Skylab. I thought you would like to see the photos of a model I have of Skylab's multiple docking adapter built by Martin Marietta. When my father-in-law retired from NASA, he went to work for Martin Marietta at NASA's Michoud facility outside of New Orleans. One of his co-workers, Mr. Davis, gave me this model along with a few aluminum commemorative coins that contain metal from Skylab. Mr. Davis told me that when they were cutting hatches from the MDA, they would save all the leftover metal and that was added to the mix when these coins were minted. The model was made in-house at Martin Marietta. The model also had a small booklet about Skylab's MDA in a pocket on the back side of the model. Keep up the good work. Look forward to podcast. Thanks so much for sharing with us, Terry. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't that be nice to have one of those coins made out of the metal from Skylab? I thought that was the coolest thing. He had some uh, pictures that I really enjoyed, too, there of the model. I appreciate your sending that in, Terry. Uh, I don't want to forget to mention the upcoming Artemis launch scheduled for 
August 29th. I want to wish all you guys at NASA the very best of luck with that. I really mean it. And I also want to give a shout out to my friend John. He's going to be in Mission Control during the launch. So best of luck, John. For those interested in the house pro- project, uh, not a whole lot has happened since we last talked, except the basement cracks continue to worsen. I'm not sure what I'm going to wind up doing about that. Over the past fortnight, we received eight donations and pledges, and I would like to thank Craig W. from Australia, who donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Manuel W. donated at the Vostok level. Peter K. moved to the Orion level with rocket emoji. Mike S. from the UK donated at the Apollo level and earned a Nova emoji. Jörg B. from Germany donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Joe C. donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Paul from Germany pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Sue P. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you very much. Our total Patreon donors have indeed dropped to 247. That number is accurate and disappointing. That was a drop of seven from last month. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 342 with an overall goal of 500 for the year. We are clearly in the dog days of summer. This happens every year when donations go down during the summer. But quite frankly, this year as a whole has been a dog year. Support is seriously lagging behind previous years. So, especially for those who have never supported the podcast, if you are enjoying it, we've been running here for nine and a half years without commercial interruptions. We can do that because it is listener-supported. So, if you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you'd like to donate by mail, which works great for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about 12 months now. If you don't know what that is, please email me and I will give it to you. My email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. All supporters or donors are rewarded in four ways. Contributors' names are added on the donors' page at the level they choose to donate. There are longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions. That is explained better on the donors' page at spacerockethistory.com. Donors receive a thank you message from me. Donors are recognized on the podcast. Donors are automatically entered in the fortnightly giveaway. So if you are able, please support the podcast. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. Well, we just celebrated another trip around the sun for Mike with our family, and it was a great time. He's really special. He means a lot to us. 
So very thankful for this guy and what he means to all of us. Now for the drawing. The winner will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jack Pullman. Jack Pullman, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. My apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 342 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Flickr, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 397 posted by September 8th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.